Now, um, we're, this is the last in a, a series we've been doing the last few weeks, looking at some issues facing Christians in the times in which we live, sort of inspired by the fact that this year was the 100th anniversary of, of John Stott's birth, and he wrote a famous book called Issues Facing Christians Today, which I will refer to a little bit later. Some of the issues we've been looked at have, have not been those he covered. Last, uh, last week, I think it was, we looked at the internet, which uh, hadn't really arrived in Stott's time or when he wrote that book. But today is something that he did talk about, which is the issue of wealth and income inequality. And I want to focus um, particularly today on that passage that Judel read to us earlier, that well-known passage from um, Luke's Gospel. And um, some of you will know that Luke, the, there, are, there are four Gospels, hopefully you, you do know that, but Luke, particularly amongst the four Gospels, is interested in the issue of wealth He's issued more broadly, he's interested more broadly in the issues of social justice. He talks a lot about wealth and poverty. He also talks a lot about the role of women. He wants to ensure that women are, the role of women are highlighted in the life of Jesus. But he seems particularly interested in issues around justice. And I would suggest that's because he is somebody who was attuned to what Jesus was saying. But Luke seems a particularly keen to draw out those things from the life of Jesus in his gospel. Another theme that we find in Luke's gospel is that of the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple is the setting for today's passage, that passage we had read to us earlier. Interestingly, Luke's gospel begins and ends in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, You remember Luke's gospel begins with Zechariah, receiving a vision, or encountering an angel, actually, when he was on duty in the temple. Uh, And then Luke's gospel ends with the disciples, after Jesus has has risen and returned to heaven, with the disciples worshipping in the temple. And so the temple is at the forefront, and a lot of the Jesus' teaching, particularly including the passage we're looking at today, takes place in the temple. If you look, it'd be great if you have your Bibles, if you've got them open uh, at, um, well, our passages at the end of Luke 20, or on your phone or whatever. Uh, but if you look back to the, the previous chapter, chapter 19, you'll see it talks about Jesus arriving in the temple. And what does he do when he arrives in the temple? Well, he, um, he teaches publicly, but he also makes it clear that he's not happy with everything that's going on in the temple. So he arrives with somewhat of a flourish, you might say. He has various tense interactions during chapter 20 with religious leaders in the temple courts. And then in chapter 21, after the the little passage we're looking at today, you'll see Jesus predicts the end of the temple. He predicts the temple is not going to last. And therefore, Although the temple is a theme of Luke's gospel, actually the temple at the end of Luke's gospel, as far as he's concerned, is a different place from the temple at the beginning. The temple at the beginning of the Luke's gospel is where you go to encounter God. The temple at the end of Luke's gospel has really, in a sense, completed its role. And the disciples are about, as we move into Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, to be sent out from the temple by the power of the Spirit, to take the gospel to Jerusalem and to Judea and to the very ends of the earth. So it's worth bearing that in mind. And you might say, why am I talking all this about the temple? I think it's significant for the way that we interpret the passage which we're looking at today. 
and I'll come to read that passage in a minute. But firstly, let me talk uh, briefly about heroes. Now, I don't know, if you go in the newsagents and you look at the newspapers for the last few days, uh, it's pretty clear who, who everyone's expecting our heroes to be. Um, uh, tell us, Matt, who are our heroes to be at the moment? Sorry? England, the English football team. Yes, and, and specifically who? Uh, Harry Kane. Harry Kane. And you can reel them off. And in particular, the manager, Gareth Southgate, thank you, who's, who's, a, who's almost a messiah-like uh, figure, as far as I can work out, looking at the press. So these are our heroes, are they not? Well, maybe, maybe not. But I would like to suggest to you another hero. Perhaps the Scots in the audience are less enamoured, I don't know, with all this, but let's not go there. Um, I'm less enamoured and I'm not Scottish, but, uh, um, but I have been watching some of the matches. But anyway, I would like to suggest to you another more significant English hero, even than those that have just been mentioned. And here's somebody that lived 500 years or so ago, somebody called William Tyndale. And I think that long after we um, are talking about um, Gareth Southgate and all these folks, uh, long after, you know, another 53 years of pain or whatever all this nonsense is, uh, we will still, I hope, be talking about William Tyndale because William Tyndale was one of the... He, he produced really the first good translation of the Bible into the English language. There were some translations before then, but he went back to the original biblical languages and translated a lot of the Bible into English. He didn't finish the job because, sadly, he was executed because in those days you were not allowed to have the Bible in English, and he became an opponent of Henry VIII. He had to flee to uh, what was then Flanders and lived there, but was eventually betrayed and was killed there. But the, uh, he had a profound influence, actually, on the English language, because the King James Version that was produced around 100 years later took a, a large proportion of it was actually Tyndale's translation. And some of the phrases that... Um, you will be familiar with, even if you don't come to church, such as, let there be light, the beginning of Genesis, or my brother's keeper, or the powers that be, or the salt of the earth, or a law unto themselves, the signs of the times, filthy lucre. All these are phrases that Tyndale used, English phrases that Tyndale used back in the 1500s to translate the scriptures into English and words that we still associate with the Bible, but actually people use in everyday language even if they don't know the Bible. And there's another phrase which is significant for today, which is the widow's might. And I'll come on to that. What on earth is a mite? I'll tell you a little bit about that later. But let's look at the passage, and I'm going to read it in Tyndale's translation. So it's a little bit archaic. We had it in the NIV earlier, but here is Tyndale's translation. You might like to follow it along in your version. So this is Luke chapter 24, verse 45, and then into the beginning of the next chapter. Then in the audience of all the people, Jesus said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes, which desire to go in long clothing, and love greetings in the markets, and the highest seats in the synagogues, and the chief rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and that under a colour of long praying. The same shall receive 
greater damnation. And Jesus beheld, he saw the rich men, how they cast in their offerings into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow, which cast in thither two mites. And he said, Of a truth I say unto you, this poor widow hath put in more than they all. For they all have in their superfluity added unto the offering of God, but she of her penury has cast in all the substance that she had. There you are, that's my Tyndale New Testament, which someone gave me years ago. And I, actually, I felt quite emotional reading those words because this was a man who gave his life literally to Bible translation. He was burnt at the stake um, in Holland, in Flanders, and his last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes, referring to Henry VIII. And within a few years, the eyes of Henry VIII had been opened. You can speculate as to the, Henry's motives, but the English, the, the English translation of the Bible did become commonly available in England. So we rejoice and give thanks for our hero, William Tyndale. So, uh, but let's back to our passage. Beware the scribes, Jesus starts off by saying in Luke 20, verse 46. Beware the scribes. Jesus has just shown in the previous verses that the scribes and the other religious leaders weren't very good at interpreting Scripture. They thought they had it all sus. They thought they had it all under control. That was their job. But Jesus has shown, if you look back in the previous chapter, that they were failing in it. But he says here in these verses that there's more to be beware of. And he lists four behaviors there in verse 46. And they're not very endearing qualities, are they? They like to walk around in flowing robes. That's number one. They love to be greeted with respect in marketplaces. That's number two. They love to have the most important seats in the synagogues, number three. And they love to have the places of honor at banquets. Do these sound like nice people? No, they sound like people who probably already had high status in a poor society. They weren't necessarily materially rich, but they had high status, and they're very keen for that status to be observed and enforced. And that's a risk for all of us, actually, however wealthy we are. It was a risk for Jesus' own disciples. If you look forwards a couple of chapters into chapter 2, verse 24, we read, as Jesus was preparing his disciples for the fact that he was about to die on their behalf, we read, a dispute arose also among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. It happens even amongst disciples. It happens even in church. And Jesus says, beware. And then two more things are mentioned in verse 47. They also devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. They devour widows' houses. What does Jesus mean by that? Obviously, they're not literally eating the houses, but they're eating away at the livelihoods of those who are most vulnerable in society. Widows were the most at risk. They had nobody. There was no social security. Um, their, their husbands, their, their means of support in that society had been taken from them. And they were easily exploited. And their precarious livelihoods were being threatened. 
by these religious leaders. Perhaps they were charging them money for their lengthy prayers. Perhaps they were saying, well, you need to support us because we're the holy ones. It's not clear quite what was going on. Maybe they were forcing the the sort of enforced hospitality in some way, and widows were being bled dry by these pompous religious leaders. Their long, showy prayers, never a good look, long, showy prayers, could have been a pretext for interfering with widows, or perhaps just another form of self-promotion. Well, says Jesus, these men will be punished most severely. They're going to receive an abundance of something, but it's not going to be the something they were looking for. You might have noticed that in Tyndale's translation, he said they're going to get an abundance of damnation. They're going to get uh, uh, a reward, and it's not the reward they want. So we encounter then in those last verses of Luke 20, those people who are using their status to show off and to exploit others. But now we're going to see a real-life illustration as we move into 21. And, and by the way, the, the chapter divisions in our Bibles are not original. Luke didn't put the chapter divisions in. They were put in in the Middle Ages, a bit before Tyndale, but not that much before. And sometimes the chapter divisions don't come in very sensible places. If you want evidence of that, look at the division between Genesis chapter 1 and 2. They didn't get off to a very good start, uh, clearly in the wrong place. Um, And here's a case where the chapter division sort of perhaps rather inhibits us from seeing these two things next to each other. We've had Jesus, his teaching, and now we see somebody who's going to illustrate the teaching because Jesus, he's there with his disciples in the temple courts. He's just been saying, look out for this injustice going on in society, and then here it is going to be acted out in front of them. And so we see this famous story in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. The rich are there putting in their 50-pound notes very ostentatiously in such a way that everybody can see how much they're putting in. In our day, they'd be looking for a plaque on the wall or at least a mention in the bulletin. And then the widow comes along, a poor widow, we're told, in verse 2. And she puts in, well, the NIV says two very small copper coins, which is a a pretty good translation. Um, Luke says two lepta, which in his, in his world were the smallest coins you could get. Uh, and Tyndale said mites, and here's the fun fact of the day. Uh, so a mite, um, Tyndale, Tyndale used, it's not, a, it's not a tick or a flea or anything like that. Um, he was living in, in um, Flanders, and a mite was the smallest copper coin you could get in Flanders. So that's what a widow's mite is. Why he chose to say a widow's mite rather than a widow's farthing or halfpenny or something, I don't know. But that's what a widow's mite is. It's the smallest possible copper coin that Tyndale could imagine. And the widow puts in her two mites. Literally, all she had for life. All she had to live off. Everything. Now, here's a question for you to think about. You on Zoom as well, you in the building, behind your masks. I think it's a question that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, expects us to ask ourselves. Is Jesus pleased with the widow's offering? Is he glad she did it? 
Is she an example for other poor widows to follow? Or not? Was Jesus pleased with the widow's offering? And I think you can answer that question both ways. And I think Luke is inviting us to ponder that and to recognize that you could answer that question in both ways. You might think the obvious answer is yes. Jesus is holding up this widow as an example. She is, after all, standing in a sense in the temple, in the shoes of Anna, that widow that we find right at the beginning of Luke's gospel. Someone who devoted themselves completely to worship in the temple, who gave up everything, who lived out a life of devotion in the temple courts. This widow, is not worried. she's not storing up for herself treasures in heaven, which Luke had warned about, or Jesus warns about in Luke chapter 12. She's not worrying about her life and about her body and about what she's going to wear and what she's going to eat and drink and everything like that. She is doing what Jesus said disciples of his should do by not worrying about um, what they have and selling their possessions and giving to the poor. She's a passionate disciple who puts the rich to shame by her devotion. So yes, Jesus is pleased with the widow. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But on the other hand, what has Jesus just been saying at the end of chapter 20? Who has he just been criticizing? And what is he unhappy about that is happening to widows? They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers, he has just said. And it seems to me that this poor widow is also a living example of just what Jesus is not happy about happening. She's in a sense a victim of a corrupt, dying temple system. A system which he is just about to say a couple of verses later in chapter 21, verse 6. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. The, the offering box will no longer be here. This system which you're financing will soon be gone. Jesus, after all, said at the beginning of his ministry that he'd come to bring good news to the poor. He had not come to bring bad news to widows, asking them to give up what they had to live on. He'd come to abolish this, what he called a den of robbers, when he first went into the temple courts in chapter 19. I'm not saying for a minute that Jesus was criticizing that widow's behavior. Absolutely not. But I don't think that he was very happy with the system which meant that the widow felt that her religious devotion meant that she had no option but to give. What do you think? You could discuss, you could discuss this in your breakout rooms, ye Zoom congregation. You could discuss this on your way out. I know you're supposed to be distancing, but once you've got outside the doors or whatever, you could discuss, do you think I'm, do you think I'm right or do you think I'm wrong? Bible experts, by the way, argue it both ways. Most of them say it's definitely one or the other. I'm saying I think it could be both. I don't think give, Luke gives us the answer. I think he's posing a slight conundrum. I think the question is left hanging. They both, both answers point to different truths. Yes, 
Worship means giving God everything. The widow is doing a beautiful thing. She is giving God everything. Worship means sacrifice. Worship means sacrifice. Worship means not giving to God our leftovers. Worship means not just coming if I feel it's the most comfortable thing to do or the safest place to be. Worship means sacrifice. It's not every little helps. That's not the theme of this story. It's a challenge to us whether we're rich or poor, how much is God worth to us? Am I prepared to give him everything? But also, I think Jesus is saying that worship is not meant to exploit the poor. If that's the outcome, the system needs to change. And that's a challenge to those who are rich, to those who are part of the establishment. What am I doing to end exploitation and to establish justice for the poor? It is a fact that proportionately the poor tend to be more generous. I lived in Africa for a while. People would give, they would literally give their last grains of rice or whatever when you, when the, and, and invite you around for a meal the richest person that I've ever known was certainly one of the meanest. And the, the, the generosity of those who are poor is therefore something to be celebrated, as Jesus does with this poor widow, but also to be lamented. They shouldn't need, the, the widow shouldn't have needed to felt feel that she had to put in everything she had to live on when the rich were giving out of their wealth and giving Jesus their leftovers. I mentioned uh, John Stott's book and uh, it's, well, it's well worth reading. Some, some bits of it have become a bit dated but I think his chapter on, po on, on poverty and wealth are still um, spot on. Uh, he, and he asks, he poses the question, is it, is it wrong to be rich? And, and, and in asking that question, we have to remember that, that most of us, probably pretty much all of us, are in global terms rich. We might not in our society have much disposable income. We might not be able to afford some of the things that other people can afford. But most of us, and, and I accept there may be exceptions, even, even here, even in Haywards Heath, there are people who need to use food banks and so on. But most of us, in global terms, are rich. We're not living hand to mouth. So what is our responsibility? And, and Stott suggests three possible responses. For, uh, for those of us who, who, relatively speaking, are wealthy. He says the first option is, is to think we need to become poor. And he says, actually, he agrees that that is a specific calling for some. Some are called to a life of poverty. Perhaps particularly if you're somebody who is inclined to be materialistic, who is inclined to worship money. There are examples in the Bible... In, in Luke's gospel of Jesus telling people, in that case, since money seems to be a big issue to you, you need to get rid of it in your life. You need to, you need to smash up that idol completely. There are some 
who receive that specific calling, as the rich young ruler did in chapter 18. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. But Stott argues, I think rightly, that that's not a universal biblical command. Not all followers of Christ are called to give away everything. So one option is to become poor, but that's not everyone's calling. Another option is to stay rich. You remember that that terrible verse in All Things Bright and Beautiful that we don't sing anymore? The rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. It's heresy. We don't sing it anymore, fortunately. It's a Victorian sentiment that said God structured society. Uh, Some are called to be rich, some are called to be poor. Don't worry about becoming more equal. Uh, God ordered it like this. Not so. That's not a biblical concept. The option of just staying as you are and saying, well, this is, this is God's will for me and I'm not going to worry about those who are less well off than me is, is clearly not a scriptural option. Uh, let me read you some of John Stott. It is not possible for affluent Christians to stay rich in the sense of accepting no modification of economic lifestyle. We cannot maintain a good life of extravagance and a good conscience simultaneously. We cannot maintain a good life and a good conscience simultaneously. One or other has to be sacrificed. Either we keep our conscience and reduce our affluence, or we keep our affluence and smother our conscience. We have to choose between God and mammon. And in particular, this challenges prosperity teaching, the concept that if you're a good Christian, God's going to bless you with more and more abundant riches, a really serious heresy, which unfortunately is still proclaimed in certain parts of the world and in some churches, and is not scriptural, and is not Christianity. So everyone becoming poor is not necessarily right, although it might be your calling, particularly if money is inclined to be your God. Staying rich is definitely not an option. So the third way that Stott advocates is what he calls generosity with contentment. And I haven't got time to go into all the the teaching on this that we find in the Bible, but I think he's right. Generosity, holding lightly to what God gives us and freely giving it to others and being content with what we have, not grasping, not seeking more. And I want to end by quoting some words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And Paul uses the word grace. Uh, The word grace in the New Testament, the Greek word charis, uh, can mean grace in the sense that we often think of it. God's are, are the undeserved riches that we experience from God. It can literally mean a gift or it can literally mean gratefulness. And you'll see it used in all these senses in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability 
entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the, and the NIV says privilege, but it's that grace word, for the grace of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. And there are, Paul goes on, I won't give the whole of the passage, but there's other words. He uses that word grace. That word, we treasure the word grace, don't we, as believers, because grace is what we receive from God. God's riches at Christ's expense, I was taught to understand grace to mean. I receive what I don't deserve because of what Christ has done for me. That's God's grace. And yet, Paul says that grace also means what I do for others. The grace of giving, the grace of being generous, the grace of sharing what I have with those who have less than me. Let's pray. We thank you, Father God, for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. We thank you for your amazing grace towards us. But we know that you also call us to a life of grace, a life of graciousness, A life of generosity, a life of giving, of sharing, of not clinging on, but holding loosely to what you give us. Help us, we pray, to learn from the example of that widow in the temple who gave everything she had to live on. But help us also to be people who work for a society where there are no widows who only have two lepta left in their pockets. We pray that you will help us to live out your grace in our day, that we may bring glory and honour to you, the God of grace who has given us so much. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.